everybody, and welcome to the ULP podcast. Uh, as always, ULP stands for the Underwear Lump Pose. I'm Scott Reed. Ryan Johnson. Chris Starden. And Corey Evan Wright. On this episode, we're going to ha- be having a discussion about Sheriff of Nottingham. We're going to talk about game art, and then we're going to talk about Seven Wonders. Uh, before we get into everything, let's talk about our weeks in gaming. Chris, go ahead and lead us off. Sure. I had some friends over uh, this past weekend just for barbecuing and such, and we... So we played a few games, played team play, which uh, I've been playing a lot of lately. It's easy to teach, good little filler, you know, uh, cheap, pretty fun. Also played Quicks, Deluxe, and then played some yard games, you know, like Mulkey and Beanbags and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, we also played Sholen, which is that Dutch game that's like Dutch shuffleboard, uh, which is pretty fun. And then with the kids, I played Tutti Frutti, which is by Gigmic, and uh, which is a little cute little matching game my daughter really likes. And uh, my son fell in love with Tok Tok Woodman. So we've been playing a lot of Tok Tok Woodman together. Um, so nothing real heavy for me this week. Just kind of light stuff with the kids and lawn games, basically. Excellent, excellent. Corey, how about you? I finally got my uh, Pathfinder beginner box. So I, uh, I played through the little single player, single player thing on there and started reading through the GM guide just to kind of get familiarized with that so I can start running games. Uh, that's pretty much it for me this week. It's been pretty, pretty mellow. Nerd. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sitting in front of my path game, Pathfinder game. <laughs> uh, Ryan, how about you? How was your week? Uh, I, I didn't get any games in, but I finished my move finally. And um, let me just say that moving even my meager collection of under 600 games is its own personal hell. I've never hated this hobby as much as putting boxes in games, moving them, and taking them back out, and then stressing out about well, I mean, first of all, Scott, I needed you because, I mean, you might actually start stuttering if you saw, like, the games I have sitting next to each other because <laughs> I just don't know what, how to group them like you do. So uh, that was its own stress, and I'm just happy that they're all on shelves. But, uh, yeah, that was I'm happy to be done with it. The game room's pretty ready to go. So that was my week. Good, good. My week was uh, fairly uneventful. Uh, I did finally get, I think for the first time in, in about a month, Got some people together to play games. Uh, we ended up playing a, a, a game of Dr. Eureka, which I was fortunate enough to pick up uh, a couple weeks back. And uh, and got in a game of Broom Service, which was uh, which was pretty fun. Although this was, again, a beginner group, so we played the basic rules for Broom Service again. Fun, but I'm still interested in getting back into those, the uh, the more challenging rules. Okay, well, proceeding from uh, proceeding from our, our first discussion about what, our, what happened in our week in gaming, we're going to talk about Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham is a sort of a remake of an older game that was called Heart Under Grenza that was originally done by Cosmos years back. It follows more or less the same gameplay, but changes the theme up a little bit, uh, whereas Heart Under Grenza was about smuggling goods across the border. It's a, it basically means a, um, all, like a, hmm, difficulty at the border, I guess, would be kind of-ish, if I could translate worth, a, worth anything. It, it's the the original game was about smuggling items across the border. Sheriff of Nottingham applies a more Robin Hood theme to it and has something to do with uh, smuggling goods past a the sheriff who's trying to look into your goods and uh, see if you're smuggling contraband. It's a uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham releases from 2014. It's actually fairly widely available. I was actually just on the Target website a couple of days ago, and you can buy it on the website. And I think you could probably buy it in stores as well. 
Uh, and I see Ryan is shaking his head. Ryan and Corey are shaking their heads that, yeah, you can buy it in stores. So it's a pretty widely available game. A lot of the game is about uh, is about bluffing. Uh, the way the rounds go is one player is the sheriff, and every every other player are every other player plays smugglers more or less, and you acquire cards. And you you play you play like actual like merchants. We just happen to be smuggling. <laughs> of course, you're less of a you're less of a Han Solo. I was uh, a bread maker. Oh, of course, yeah, and I was a uh, I was uh, selling roosters. So you're profiling us, Scott. Yeah. It is. It is a actually. It is kind of a game of profiling, but each player is each player has a hand of cards that they are uh, that they are allowed to that they or they put into their bag, which is what they're taking across the border, and then they throw them all to the sheriff. Now the deal is you can fill your bag with all legit goods, and you're fine, or you can smuggle across contraband goods and try to get those past the sheriff. The deal is that when you throw the bag to the sheriff, the sheriff has the option to ask for a bribe not to look in the bag. You can negotiate and, and and try to uh, work out a bribe with the sheriff. But if the sheriff opens your bag, which these bags have a little snap on them for this game, uh, if the undoes the snap, he has decided to look inside of your bag. If he finds contraband, contraband goes to the discard pile, but you still get to keep your legitimate items. Uh, but you also have to pay a fine for any, any contraband items to make it across. But if you give him a bag that's full of legit items and you convince him that he needs to inspect it, the sheriff owes you money for each of the legit items that you're trying to smuggle because you're not actually smuggling. You're legit. You're actually a legit merchant. And then uh, at the end of the game, there are bonuses paid out to each person who has the most of the four types of or the four principal types of goods that you smuggle across the border. And then contraband goods, naturally, because of their riskier nature, are worth more than uh, the legit goods that you carry across. Corey, you played Sheriff of Nottingham at, at uh, when we were down at the lake. What did you think of it? Well, I'm a pretty terrible like negotiator and or bluffer, so it was tough for me. And there's also the fact that like even if you were a fantastic bluffer, the sheriff could just open it every time. So uh, it, to me, it was kind of a uh, I'd have to play it a few more times probably to get the kind of right rhythm to the or the right balance of you know doing legit goods and then doing some a little bit of of smuggling getting things in there so i enjoyed it i mean it was fun it was just uh it was a little tricky for me who's so kind-hearted so good of heart (laughs) (laughs) i got you ryan what about you what did you think and you've played hard on the grants as well i'm fairly sure we've played it in the past so i mean i think i actually prefer hardened grenza a little bit correct me if i'm wrong there's there aren't there isn't like six inches worth of cards right i mean there's a ton of cards and Sheriff of Nottingham. There's not as many in uh, the original, but uh, the the original one just kind of lends itself more to our group's humor a little bit. I mean, you're you know, there's a picture of a pretty uh, stereotypical border police, you know, from, you know, Mexico kind of a thing. Um, but with Sheriff of Nottingham, I actually find that I think it plays better with people that are only passing gamers uh, you know so family members and stuff like that because you know when you play it in a group of you know a salty group of gamers like we are everybody's just metagaming everything you know like we all knew that no matter what we said chris was going to open our bags you know so you just so at that point you're just trying to feed him as much negative points as you can and then you've kind of taken a hit that round because you didn't get any of the really good stuff so you know I enjoy it it's um it's fun to bluff. I think sheriff maybe goes a little bit long, but you know it's a it's a, for what it is it's good it's a good bluffing game yeah i agree i I think it's a good for family you know not good for hardcore gamers. I liked 
Hartendegrenza better. It had a, I think it had an additional twist. I think there was something different about the rules, if I remember right, but I can't, I can't quite place it. I don't know what it was. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I do know the components were a million times better in that version, though, with the uh, little suitcases that you smuggled things through. There were little metal tins. They were great. Yeah, and we'll talk and, about that later with art, but that's that's one of the things I did like about the the, the original is just that the interface with those metal tins, that's like an, a value add for me. Yeah, I mean, and it came with a little sheriff badge, too, you know, that you clipped on, which I thought was cool. Oh, and also you can't see through the yellow bag, you know what I mean, that comes with <laughs> the sheriff of Nottingham, which is a huge oversight. If your whole game is about hiding things in a bag, make sure you can't see through one of them. That's a fair. That's a fair point. I mean, uh, I I know that they they we holding those bags. The uh, the material feels pretty thin, but uh, you know, as well we all know, to keep game production costs down, sometimes you have to you have to err on the side of having uh, cheaper components just so that you're not selling a a game for sixty dollars that's really only worth about forty dollars. But yeah, having having a a light colored fabric. That uh, that lets you see through it when one of the principal elements of your game is that nobody should know what's inside the bag. That's kind of a kind of a substantial oversight. Yep, minus five stars. <laughs> no, <laughs> literally I mean, unplayable. It is it is true though. You know, like uh, I noticed the quality. There was a huge quality difference because the original game was made by Cosmos, right? You know, beautiful components, and you know this version, the card tray feels weird and plasticky. The cards were thin. The bags were a little shoddy. Like you know, just I don't know. Um, There's the stick figures worse. instead of art. There's... Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's like some kid just drew all of it. But yeah, it's uh, yeah clearly a down. You know, from the original version, and I understand. You know, it, it makes it available to a wider audience. But to me, the quality of the components hurt the game. Well, and here's the thing: just don't have yellow. Yeah, there's that. Uh, I, I was gonna. I just wanted to comment on the the, the cost of things. I, I would wager that when Hardwater Grenza was available at retail, at least at U.S. retail, it's probably about fifty dollars MSRP, thirty five dollars um, uh, online. I mean, that seemed like that's about where the price point was for Cosmos big box games at that time. Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham is available at Target for twenty six dollars. And so, I mean, that's that's one of the things that, that even with a, a decade's worth of inflation and whatnot, that it's still in a in a, a sort of a, a very very much a mid price range at a regular retail store, whereas you know, Hard Under Grenza at a at a at a game shop would have been fifty bucks, and if you could have got it someplace like Time Well Spent or um, Fun Again or some other place, it would have been like thirty five to thirty seven. Chris, if the yellow was double bagged and you had to buy it for thirty two, would that be better? No, no. <laughs> I mean, you know, they just, I, they I understand Scott's point. Yeah, go ahead. Every time we like open the snaps, it like felt like you're gonna rip the bag. You know, it just kind of had that feeling to it. That was a big element too. That that I mean, I, I I like the fact that these snaps were very snappy, and that you had a definite moment between open and not open. But yeah, having that moment where you you're pulling at that snap and you feel like the bag could tear between your fingers is not yeah, that's not pleasant. Yeah, I, I feel like Sheriff and Nottingham also puts some fat hate on, 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 on the game. Like the sheriff doesn't need to be that fat. <laughs> it's a fair point. That's a fair point. That, uh, that is one grossly obese sheriff. I mean, his arm fat's got arm fat. <laughs> then he's got those, uh, those sexy bondage gloves on. Too. I mean, they could have just put Alan Rickman on there. He was a sheriff. <laughs> <in my name. laughs> oh, that Alan Rickman. Uh, if only, 
If only somebody did a good impression of him, but nobody does. <laughs> God rest his soul. Um, well, that was a very short discussion on, on Sheriff John Campbell. <laughs> Would anybody like to add anything further? Or are we just putting that topic to bed? Um, well, I'll, I'll say one thing, because I don't think Hart and Legrenza added this, and maybe Sheriff just added this for a catch-up mechanic or whatever. But the um, And it's an optional rule, but the the royal goods, I didn't think I would like them, but at the in our game, the last game we played, uh, Downs the Lake, I thought I had the monopoly on apples. Like I was, I stopped. By, I stopped trying to get apples because I had like thirty apples, and somehow, like, I, like I think that's all you had was like royal goods apples, wasn't it, Chris? Yeah. And somehow he ended up beating me in apples. So I actually kind of like that. They added, you know, something that could be hidden that way, but I can also see that being annoying as well. So, yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't believe that Hart under Grenza had, um, had any sort of like bonus goods, a contraband version of a legit good, but that was worth multiple legit goods. So that was, yeah, you're right. That that feels like a catch-up mechanism, but it also it adds a little bit to the dynamic of the game in that you. Uh, in trying to get those bonuses, because since, since whenever you you smuggle a contraband good, nobody saw that you smuggled a contraband good. You just slide it into the contraband pile that you have underneath your board, so nobody saw. Well, it. you might see that you've got it, right? But... I guess somebody, I guess you, you would reveal that you took some contraband goods across. Somebody might have seen it, but then it goes hidden in the pile, whereas all of your legit goods are spread out right. in the open, so you can count how many chickens or how many apples that somebody else is holding on to. But you might not know that they have other contraband versions of those same things that give them, you know, twos and threes yep. of those hidden in their, in their contraband pile. Yeah. Hardender Grenza just had contraband goods that were separate from that. Cause you were smuggling tequila and like Aztec idols and, you know, things like that out of the country. So bongs, bongs and yeah. glassware. I will say I did like, like for me, you know, theme is big and I'm a big, like Robin hood kind of nuts. So that was kind of, I, except for the bags, which kind of didn't do much for me. I, even like the luggage is, uh, I think, a lot better fit for the theme. These little bags kind of don't have any representation of anything. I mean, really. Well, they thought know. about doing like gunny sacks, but then the box would have to be huge. And <laughs> the real chickens, that's bigger. <laughs> yeah, but the theme works for me. So I, yeah. that was well, that's a one plus in its direction. Yeah. I, I mean, I think thematically the game would feel a little bit more on theme with Sheriff of Not- with you know sort of Sheriff of Nottingham whatever else if they were like drawstring pouches and instead of having instead of having cards you had chips that you sl- you dropped in there instead uh, but I just think that the logistics of trying to draw chips for as many as as many items as there were in the game like, like having an entire table full of face down chips and pulling a few out of the middle uh, I don't know if that would play quite as well especially because the way they they do the the discards where you have to you have to stack them up that would be a cluster it yeah, would it would by sure. a lot. I hope it gets a movie tie-in with, you know, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Also, yeah, you know, you know, as they typically do, tie in a movie twenty-five to thirty years later. Yeah. Like, oh hey, Scott, that, that was a great movie <laughs> with Kevin Costner. Yeah, yeah, and Alan Rickman. Yeah. And Men in Tights but, was better, <laughs> but it had Kevin Costner's butt. Though. It did. It did. Yeah, and that it could had be the a, cover. It had Jack Wild, who was uh uh the kid with the um from Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, I think. I don't remember what show it was. It was some some Croft show. He had the magic flute. What? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even old enough to remember that show, and yeah. I still know about wow. it. <laughs> yeah. H.R. Yeah. Puffin stuff. Right. Yes, that was it. I know. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I remember <laughs> H.R. I know what you're Puffin talking stuff. about. Right. Sigma and Sea Monsters is a different show. 
Yeah, it's just a weird... Weird tie-in. Because yeah. I mean, yeah. Jack Wilde showed up for like yeah. seven seconds in that movie, but it's still Jack Wilde. And then later he died of alcoholism. Stick to the topic of tying in Kevin Costner with this property. <laughs> I was trying to tie in Ace and Puff and stuff. That's and, that's the real tie-in we need and here. Who else was Morgan Freeman in that movie? He was. He was. Right? So was uh, so was um, that chick that looks like Andy McDowell but is not Andy McDowell. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, she was Ninja Maid Marion, and then completely yeah, yeah. helpless Maid Marion. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, the kid was in True Romance. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Christian Slater. Slater. Yeah, Christian yeah. Slater. Yeah, he was in that. Yep. 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 Yep, yep, good. Yep. good. So, so was Alan Rickman. Hey, Alan Rickman. <laughs> oh, he's good. Love that Alan Rickman. Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah, love him. <laughs> Thought he was better to snipe, but... He's Australian, right? Uh, I don't think so, not at all. <laughs> like, no part of him is Australian. <laughs> Doesn't even sound it. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to our next topic, Ryan is going to talk to, uh, to us a little bit about game art. As a graphic designer and and a art professional, uh, Ryan's got a lot of opinions about game art. So lay some of them on us. All right. So, um, yeah, for, for me, uh, art is a big deal. Um, I've tried my hand at doing uh, art for games. Uh, I've got a couple credits, but... Uh, one of the things that, that always attracts me to to buying a game is its artwork, and um, even it even goes beyond artwork. So, a, a lot of the games that we play as a group, uh, especially at game you know game conventions and stuff, tend to be the, the sillier stuff. Or you know, I think we find ourselves constantly constantly looking over these game collections at these conventions and just kind of waiting for something to pop out at us. And usually, it's a you know, something ridiculous, but it's always the art that is kind of giving us a, that first clue on what this game might be like. And for me, you know, there are companies out there that, you know, like GMT doesn't really, I mean, they, they don't not care about their art, but, you know, they have a formula that, you know, their their maps are hexes and their chits are, are very iconic as far as, you know, being a GMT kind of a game. And the lack of art doesn't really take away from their games. But with the way gaming has kind of developed into, you know, out of the gaming, the hobbyist market, and it's starting to kind of bleed into regular consumer, you know, mass market consumerism, we're starting to see a lot more em- emphasis put on art. And I find it fascinating to see that there are a couple of companies that are, you know, have become kind of known for their artwork uh, and some that have been kind of be- have become known for their lack of it. But I don't know. For, what are your what what kind of games are? Do you guys have a game that you can you you think of that you just more than the gameplay or maybe as much as the gameplay just wowed you with? This is a beautiful game. You know, Dungeon so Roll? yeah, exactly. Dungeon Roll, which Brian did art on. I think I would go with something like you know, uh, like Dixit or Mysterium. You know, ones that have a lot of art. Um, I prefer the original Dixit art. I think they have a new artist doing uh, the newer expansions right now. Um, the original artist Marie, I can't think of her name. Um, I like her stuff. The I think she really captured the you know like the kind of dreaminess. The you know integrating the elements. At, you know, the way the use of color, all the little hidden things that are, you know, in in all of those uh, pieces of art. I just think it's it's really cool. That's what comes to my mind, you know, first and foremost. And then there's other games like uh, 
Seasons, for example. Like Seasons has got that kind of, I don't know, stylized, chibi kind of art. Um, I, I really like that. It's nice and crisp and clean, but there's a lot going on, you know, and the colors are cool and um, everything's that, you know, it's it's a far cry from like GMT or like Asmati Games, you know, who his art is just basically non-existent, you know, or uh, God, like that, that one version of Glory to Rome, the original one. Uh, yeah. Whew, I mean, uh, the, like you know, the, use clip art for God's sake. You know what I mean? Don't don't give it to a twelve year old to draw or whatever it is. You know, uh, maybe a twelve year old would have done better. I don't know who does the art on some of these. You know, but uh, there are some questionable choices being made. And Glory Rome has survived somehow despite the terrible art. But I got to tell you, when I first saw it, I would have looked right over it because the art looks so terrible. I would. I just immediately thought. Well, nobody gave a damn about this game, right? <laughs> you know, right. to put such terrible art on yeah. it. I'm not even going to give it a try. And I think there's probably a lot of games that are like that, for me anyway, that I've looked at and I went, God, that is that is hideous. You know, somebody obviously didn't care and just wanted to get it to market and yeah. I well, passed I, over it. And I, I get it. So, Chris, you and I have, have actually, you know, dealt with probably you more, more than I probably, but we've dealt with companies and we kind of see, you know, what their feelings are towards are. And I'm, I'm sure that as a publisher, it's hard to condone a large art budget without knowing that, you know, the artist that you're paying for is going to pay off and people will like that stuff or, you know, for every, so let's say in, with Dixit, cause I personally like the new version of Dixit much better, but that's also mm-hmm. speaking more to my, you know, children's storybook kind of fascination. But, you know, as a publisher, I have to worry about, okay, I'm going to make this change now from this first edition to second edition, and I'm going to really pump more money into the art. You know, so I, I see this, see the trepidation about, you know, paying for art. But, you know, that that's just kind of that catch-22. You know, do you, do, you, do you spend a lot on the art and get someone that's good, or can you kind of phone it in and get someone that's okay? I always go for the – I feel like if you look at the games that out, you know, kind of last – that, you know, the games that are going to last are usually not ugly, right? Glory to Rome would not have existed beyond its first edition if they hadn't, like, Motani is is way better, right? It's the same game. But if they tried to sell that on Kickstarter with the original art or art just like the original, I don't think they would have sold. But, Corey, what about you? I know you're kind of, you, you like art quite a bit. Is there anything yeah. out there that... Yeah, I, I also like the, the newer art on Mysterium and Dixit. Um, it's funny when you were saying that because I had been... That's what originally got me into even asking about board games was that the new cover of the... Um, I don't know how to pronounce the publisher. But um, uh, but I, I like that atmospheric kind of art and I kind of gravitate towards that children's book style as well. Um, so I really like that kind of stuff. And it's funny that you mentioned Glory to, Glory to Rome because when we, we were playing that month and I game or Matani, however you pronounce it. And uh Brian mentioned there was a kind of a Rome themed edition. I looked it up and I immediately was like, nope. <laughs> you see that art and it just it's hard to take it seriously. So but yeah, I I do like that newer the newer Mysterium style of art. Um I haven't looked into many games, you know that. So uh the more I see that the more I lean towards that that style that's kind of it's not cartoonish, but it's I, I want to say atmospheric, but that's not really what it is. It just conveys the theme well. Just that rich art style, I guess. Scott, what about you? I mean, one of my my classic go tos. I was, I was thinking about the, this topic and about like uh, where I've really enjoyed art and games. And I think where I like a long time ago, where I first appreciated 
the actual art in the game that I felt like it really drew me in uh, was all of the art on uh, cards from Magic the Gathering. Like every card had not only did it have a, you know, a sort of a unique art piece for each card, but so many of them were so evocative of theme. And you also, because each card gave you the name of the illustrator, you could really pick out an illustrator that you liked, and you could you know you could see across multiple cards just sort of that influence. Like I know from from a long time ago when I was playing uh, Revised, uh, Anson Maddox's uh, like Sanger Vampire and Llanowar Elves and Living Wall and a few other like su- substantial pieces in there was just sort of like this like a a colorful version of, of uh, like with Llanowar Elves especially and then even like Living Wall I felt like it was a bit more like it was a bit like Geiger art but that was instead of just being all black and white it involved a lot more color uh, but still had sort of like some very hard lines to it so I really like that but but also uh, coming into um, into like larger game collecting and looking back on art I really like just sort of as a general blanket rule is that most of the art that Ideal put on their game boxes is is fantastic. I mean, it's just it, it's very evocative of a time period, um, like the cover, like the classic cover for Battling Tops, the cover for Cold Feet, the even the even the cover for the original Mousetrap. I mean, even as bad as Mousetrap typically is, because the the machine never works, or it seems like it never works, uh, the cover alone could sell the game because of how much like how detailed it was and how much it looked like this is this bizarre Rube Goldberg contraption contraption is going to go off and it's going to be the, the neatest thing in the world. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting you bring up magic because I was going to bring that up as a kind of an example of, you know, because in the beginning, actually a lot of those cards in the, that started out in magic were God awful. Like if I, if I say Dan Foster, the, those, like I couldn't believe that guy was a paid artist and now, now he got much better. Well, I shouldn't say he, he got much better than he was. Still not not as great as some of the others. And and nowadays, yeah, I mean, as a freelance artist, I would I would kill for a commission with Magic the Gathering. But they've you know cultivated this group of artists, and you know you you have to be an A game illustrator now to be able to get your artwork into a game like Magic. But you know, that illustrates that that need for a company to leave the amateur art behind if they want to build, you know, something substantial. But yeah. And, you know, it's interesting also they bring up the ideal games because especially with me building a new game room and wanting art on my walls, I found myself actually kind of looking at, is it the Desi Scarpone uh, books um, that kind of highlight all the games from the past and just kind of, you know, turning page to page, seeing, you know, the, box covers on some really probably terrible games, right? But like their style, you know, I would love to have a wall that just has board game box art starting from the 60s and going all the way to the, you know, to now. And you would really see, that, you know, those, a progression of styles, right? But, you know, other than that, it's just, do you guys feel like artwork is necessary for gameplay or, to, you know, to, to push a game to a next level or is it just something that's there for to be enjoyed i mean i i've i know i i feel that good art can make a mediocre game better but that great art can't save a bad game because like i feel like a number of like i'm not really a big fan of a lot of zombie genre stuff and some zo- zombie genre stuff does some very evocative uh like you know it gets the whole feeling of darkness and zombies whatever else but a lot of the mechanisms that I find in zombie games, I just do not care for them. Like, uh, I don't know, I'm, like in my mind, I'm thinking of like you know the actual like like zombies games, which had okay art, not necessarily great art. 
Um, but even like Zombicide, uh, Mall of Horror, and a few other games. Like I've never really gotten into zombie games, but the but the art on them is it can't. You know, some of the art is is, is fairly decent and, and very evocative of theme. I mean, I think I I don't know. Um, I didn't actually play it, Ryan. But did you did you play Dark Dark or Darkest? Yeah, we we all played like a third of it. Yes. Oh yeah, no, I, I played half of that game, and it it, it totally did not work. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I feel like the like it it was like a very dark box, and you know, it, it from what I recall of it, it seemed like it was you know very on point with with zombie theme. Like they kind of got horror down, right. and just as a game, it did not work, and the art could not save it. Yeah, so let me so uh, on that point, what about a game like Sheer Panic? What if Sheer Panic didn't have those super cute sculpted sheep? Because like I've actually played that game. You know, at at lunchtime at work, and anybody that's played Sheer Panic, it's from the um, what's the name of the company? Fragor Brothers. Is that their is that their company name? Anyway, I think so. Yeah, it's a it's a, it has nine sh- or nine or twelve sheep. I can't remember how many. And you're just, I think each player has two or three sheep, and you're trying to position them based on some, you know, very limited chess like moves, and you're either trying to get them toward the front or toward the back or or whatever. But it's a really cutthroat game. It's, you know, it's not very friendly. I mean, you're, you know, but by moving your piece, you're usually trying to screw as many other people as you can. But it has this appeal to people that haven't played it, don't, don't know what it, what it is. But as they walked by, I don't know how many times people stopped and asked me, what is that? And I'd tell them, they'd be like, oh, where can I find that? I'm like, well, you know, I tell them and I'm, you know, but I'm like, you know, be careful. This is not, you know, this looks like a, a kid's game. It's not. But I think sheer a game like Sheer Panic is an example of a game where the, you know, the interface of it and the artwork and the aesthetics of those sheep make it way more of a popular game than it ever would have been as a tile game. And think about, uh, you know, in, in the same vein as the ideal games, like Stuff Your Face. That is actually one of my favorite visual games. Like it's, it's a little creepy. It's a so stuff your face is a an old ideal game. It's it is ideal, right? Milton Bradley. Milton Bradley, actually. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so scrap all that ideal stuff then. <laughs> no, it's a Milton Bradley game where you've basically just got this arena full of red and green marbles and yellow. And yellow. Right, right. The clowns are actually green and yellow. Yeah. Um and you have a clown on each side with this kind of tilt their face is tilted at 45 degrees and you have a you have a uh, like a spout for a lower lip, but then you have these doll hands, and you have to like in the vein of a puppeteer, you have to take these sticks that are connected to the back of the doll hands and try to manipulate these balls up into the mouth. It's hilarious to watch. It's hard as hell, uh, but just that whole interface, like whoever came up with that, that is, that's genius, right? I mean, have you guys ever? Played that or not played that? Where there's just not ten minutes of giggling. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it it is it is a a visual feast for what you for what you get out of that. But just because, yeah, the, the tiny little chubby doll hands uh, gripping the ball, especially when somebody's get when they, somebody gets really good at it and they're, they're right. able to manipulate it. So <laughs> so it looks like you have a tiny hand just picking up this ball and then bringing it up to the mouth. No, to, no, no. The, the best part is when that player is getting good and the other player gets pissed. And then that, that they're, the other doll hands are coming in, just like trying to screw with them getting the ball. Yeah. You know that. You know, it, actually, for instance, you know, like the old we played the old Pie Face a lot, Chris's copy, and the new Pie Face to me, it, like when I bought it, I mean, I knew what it looked like when I bought it, and I wanted to buy it just for family, but 
it just kind of pisses me off that it's so cheap now. And I, and I get it. It's 40 years later and plastic's more expensive. But, you know, it, it lost some, uh, you know, aesthetic punch for me. You know, are there other games like that for you guys where the gameplay just would not be interesting at all without that aesthetic interface? Uh, I don't know. So, I mean, one I can think of that uh, uh, kind of marries everything together is the old Survive, the Parker Brothers version. That art is uh, amazing to me. Like, I love the art on the cover of the box. I like how everything looks and that. And I think the new one is does not look great at all. The right. Stronghold version. I don't. I don't like the choices they made. You know, for all the stuff. Um, I think they kept it simple with the old one and that old kind of. It, it's very nostalgic art. You know, like it. It just evokes the right thing to me. Yeah. And speaking of magic, I was I was thinking about magic too because some of that art was terrible. Oh know, yeah, like from Arabian Nights and you know all that kind of stuff. Like it was. It was bad, but I, I remember uh, the Foglio's art was some of my favorite stuff. You know, Kaja and Phil. You know, the stuff that they were doing, mainly Kaja. That was, you know, like what I what I enjoyed about Magic. We would we would collect stuff, and those guys now I know they do pretty good money, like selling their prints at shows and things like that. Some of the uh, the Magic artists that have survived. So, yeah, it's lucrative to be a Magic artist of any repute, really. Yeah, and especially if your card gets reprinted in you know one of these recent sets or whatever, you know. So, I think it's uh, I like to see that a lot more publishers are paying attention to art because for a while there, like you look at Mayfair's catalog, you know what I mean? Like it was pretty bad, you know, like just flat and kind of lifeless, you know, focusing on the gameplay, right? But really, the art was not evoking anything. Right. Um, and, he, and in Counterpoint, you look at Fantasy Flight, which, you know, a lot of gamers <coughs> would say that Fantasy Flight's, you know, right. theme is just choke, you know, choke on the theme, really. Yeah. But And ha- where's the gameplay in some right. of it, you know? And, but hands down, there are, you know, like, it actually staggered. I, I find myself just not being able to believe how they're able to pay for all that art because games like Runebound have just this colossal amount of art. Not to mention like their Tide of Iron stuff, and then you know I think their art's usually all pretty darn pretty darn good. But yeah, that's you know that's the difference between two different companies, right? Yeah, and you know, and some have found the happy medium. You know, Rio Grande has never really done a great job on art on their own. Uh, their licensed stuff, depending if they got it from Eggert Spiel or Cosmos or whoever, you know, that was all decent. But I can't think of really. I think Fantasy Flight probably has the most consistent art, you know, in terms of quality. I don't love their art though. I think it's like too realistic, kind of creepy, weird, or whatever. But I can tell it's high quality. But I can't really think of another publisher that really does a great job. Like I like all the cathedral stuff, actually. The breeze yeah, art. I, I would but, actually say that right now, and this is they're being bolstered by uh, Asmodee, but uh, Yellow has. Like I know, whenever I see a yellow game that that, that you could hide the logo from me, and I can tell you, usually nine times out of ten, whether or not it's an, a yellow game, they obviously put a huge emphasis on their art, and they, you know, they're a French company as well, and I know that French artists are kind of in demand right now. But yeah, I agree with you that Fantasy Flight's got, you know, they have a they have a they must have a good art director, right? I actually think Catan does a pretty decent job with at least, you know, keeping their art consistent and 
you know, not letting it go bad. Like, because look at Agricola, right? Probably, a, you know, well, most people would say it's a superior, you know, a superior mechanical game to some of the Catan stuff. But some of their art is just, like, you can tell they didn't spend a whole lot of money on that art. Uh, some of the other games I kind of wanted to kind of bring up uh, in another company, actually, with Days of Wonder, I feel like they uh, do a really good job with their art as well. Games like Small World. I mean, talk about – so that's a reprint, right? Um, what was the – Scott, the original game uh, was – Vinci. Vinci. Vinci, right. That's about as boring as you can get, right? It was It was just a map of Europe, right? I Actually, it wasn't a map of – yeah, it wasn't a map of Europe. It was sort of an abstracted land map, kind of like you do in, in Small World. But, yeah, without the uh, – like all of the – all the flavor that you get in Small World by having different races and by having uh, different abilities, all of that in Vinci was just about abstracted because basically you got two tiles that were like your special abilities. Because you, you know, at least in Small World, you have a race that's one thing and you have your ability, which is another thing. In uh, Vinci, you just had two tiles that were sort of both abilities, and so they so some of that stuff got split up into races and abilities for uh, for Small World. But yeah, and then from there, you were just putting down discs. Your your entire civilization was just discs on the board, so yeah, a small world went crazy with the art and like spi- added spice to everything. I agree. I like you know, I like I think Days of Wonder does a good job overall um, on their art. I mean, they should. They put out one game a year, right? So right. yeah, like <laughs> I I think it's yeah they should do that. But you know, I'm tired of seeing the same artists like on Queen games. You know, every Queen cover looks like it's done by the same person. You know, but it, it's a very clear style that it's a queen game though, you know? Right. And, um, yeah, it's hard. I don't think there's a publisher that I love all their art of, you know, I think it's, I gravitate towards just individual things. I can think of, uh, uh, Fidelitas, that, uh, green couch games, that little, like, I love that style, you know what I mean? Right. But that style suits that game. If the style of the art matches like what you're going for, then I think I'm a fan, you know, like if it's a fast paced kids game with dinosaurs or whatever, and everything's crazy. Great. You know what I mean? Right. Just put some effort into it. Pay your artists, you know, give them a percentage of the profits. Right. Yeah. That'd be, I'd go for that. (laughs) (laughs) The games that have been most memorable, memorable for me so far have been the ones where the, the art matches so well to the gameplay and kind of elevates it a little bit. Like, which version of Ed Decker did we play? Was it the Cosmos version? We played Cosmos's uh, Denoyan Ed Decker. We did not play the uh, Gold Seaver, just Ed Decker. Uh, yeah. And then I think, actually, did we play Denoyan Ed Decker? Did we play the? Uh, uh, did somebody have Ed Decker exploring New Horizons? Oh, it was exploring New Horizons. I think that's right. What it was. And and that one that one uses the same, uh, I think, map and box inside, but Mayfair uh, did a different box outside. Okay. So that 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 game really did it for me. Like on both levels, the gameplay was fun, and the art really worked. Kind of worked, worked with me for the theme. Kind of pulled me into it. But um, and then there are other games that that Trainmaker game, uh, Ryan, that we play at work sometimes. I I'm not a huge fan of the art on that, but I love the gameplay, and I feel like it would have been like just just that extra couple notches if it was just a little bit different style. But that's just me too. I mean, it's right. it's decent art. It's just not. <laughs> Well, it's interesting too because if you like train games, you know I I would go as far as to say that most any train gamer that um, has a game room with a lot of art in it probably doesn't have art from the games. It's probably just posters of old train art from the you know from their their posters and you know ride the rails kind of stuff, which is too bad because there I think there a lot of those older train games could benefit from retooling. You know, Age of Steam, great game. Visually on the board, visually though, it's geometric shapes, right? 
Yeah, I think they really uh, – all those train games, they're considered heavier, you know, for the most part, you know, other than Ticket to Ride, things like that. So they go for that gameplay. They know that those hardcore gamers don't really care much about art or seemingly don't, you know, because they sell whatever. But if they did pay a little attention and use maybe some of the, you know, the advertising stuff from the train lines, you know, back in the day, that stuff is really cool. Yeah. The, the way that art looked and – just using that for a box cover or something would catch my eye. Yeah, and you know, there's other games then too. Like, um, how many of you guys own a copy of Jamaica? I got one. I bought I bought mine back when you could only get it from Germany, and I spent like ninety bucks on it because that game may be the gold standard for like just ridiculously good artwork in a game. But you know, as a game, Jamaica is just really a, a roll and move game. It's maybe a little bit more modern. It's got some you know, tweaked roll and move mechanics. And so it stays a little bit interesting, but they, you know, the best part of that game for me is these cards that you have. And each card has really the mechanic is just that it has a left side and a right side. And the left side happens in the morning and the right side happens at night. But they decided to pay an artist to basically build a mural that would be split into, I think there's probably what, 12 cards, maybe, maybe 14. I think it's 12, but it's a 12 piece uh, mural that if you stack the cards left to right, or actually if you put them in a, you know, you, if you kind of stood them up and bent them so they could go in a circle, it just makes this continuous loop of this amazing mural. And then they didn't stop there. They decided that they would make, the, you know, the chits nice and the, the components really nice. And then their rule book would have an extra page on the back that had nothing but, you know, a picture of a bunch of gold coins. So that when you open the box, which looks like a treasure box, like it, it looks like there's nothing but coins in it, right? So it's just visually just an astounding game. And it, it, gameplay, it doesn't suck. It's not the best. But it, I, I guarantee that that game has sold more copies based on its art than on its gameplay. Yeah, um, and... I think it's worth mentioning too that uh, that some of the publishers I've noticed in Target, for example, that they're doing the retro games now. So they're they're putting out the retro covers of like Yahtzee and Twister and you know things like that, branding them retro. And, but they have some of that cool old art that's right. on there because I guess they you know need to sell extra copies of Clue somehow. You know that people haven't figured out that you can get ten of them at Goodwill. You know so right. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's cool. It, I think it speaks to what people want out of art. They either want kitschy and neat or, you know, they want some kind of thought put into it. Yeah, or nostalgic and, yeah, I get it. I, we've already kind of answered. I, I don't know if I answered the question of favorite art. Um, my favorite game uh, artwork is Dragon Master, actually. It's a it's a uh, trick-taking game. I guess it's, yeah, it's a trick-taking game from 1981. Uh, Bob Pepper is the artist, and no one would really know who Bob Pepper is. He was a like a music like a music uh, magazine kind of illustrator, but he also did all of the cell art on Black Tower or Dark Tower. And Dragon Master is just more of the same. It's I think there's there's four suits of cards, and they each have I think ten or eleven cards in each suit, and it's a special you know, characters, they're all unique characters. So it's just a beautiful game. But, you know, for me, I, I, I don't think I own very many games that don't appeal to me in the art, you know, for, for art. So mm-hmm. love art. Yeah. Art's good. Without art, everything would just be blank. Yay, art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even the games that don't have much art, like Suburbia does a really nice job with a very mild design, but 
I think it it worked well for me. Kind of kind of fits that style of game. You don't need like crazy realistic, you know, thematic art to to cut the point across. So. Yeah, see, they're at the bottom of the barrel for me. Bezier games, like I, yeah. I think all their art is pretty much garbage for the <laughs> most part. Like Castles of Mad King Ludwig or whatever is about as best as they do, and then. If you've seen the Polish version of that game, it just completely blows it away. It's beautiful, like absolutely beautiful. It's not somebody with a CAD program or whatever like the rest of their games are. So like yeah. Favor of the Pharaoh, like that game is garbage art, like yeah. absolute garbage art. Sorry. I, <laughs> they could do such a better job, you know. Um, I, I understand wanting to be cheap and not wanting to take a risk and that kind of thing. But, uh, man, you know, invest in someone you know, that can do mm-hmm. that stuff. You know, speaking of that kind of thing, I think the Fragger brothers that you mentioned earlier are kind of the poster child for overproduced right. like bits and components for not much game. You know, uh, their games are kind of iffy, uh, to be perfectly yeah. honest. I think you know, Sheer like, Panic is the reason for that, though. Yeah, like they, you know, uh, what's that that giant co-op game, Spellbound? Right. You know, that had all those huge figures in it, but it wasn't much of a game. And um, Poseidon's Kingdom... You know, which had the gimmick and then the the little crafted fish and things like that. Uh, they all feel a little bit unfinished, but they all have these cool, you know, pieces. You know, yeah. Um, the other the other one I always think of is uh, Doris and Frank from the old days. You know, like uh, uh, Frank Sue and Aladdin's Dragons, and you know, like all those that that kind of art. You know, it's very very specific, very stylistic, and you know, I can always like tell Elf it Quest, from a different. Huh? No, I hate Elf. I hate Elf. Elf Quest. Yeah. The uh, the comic. Yeah. Oh no, God no. That for some reason their stuff reminds me of the. Same oh really? Kind. Yeah, it's not. It's not that it looks the same, but it just kind of reminds me of the same kind of. Yeah, they did like uh, Mew and Moore, and you know that the art that's on there. It's very kind of colorful, right. sharp lines. You know that kind of thing. Yeah, I will say, I don't have to like the art to appreciate the publisher's sense of providing the art, right? Like, what's that What's that deck-building game? Um, Ascension? Uh, Ascension Chronicle of the Godslayer? Maybe. It's, it's all the art's done on Scratchboard, and I just hate it. Yeah, but, everybody does. <laughs> but kudos to them for picking it, going with yeah. it, sticking, you know, and yeah, at least boy, they stuck with it, all right. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I mean, you know, but it it's a decent game. It's a fun game, but you know, another one where the art is not great or not my style. But I haven't heard of anyone who actually likes the Ascension art. You know what I mean? I I don't know. I, I know it's a I know it's such a subjective thing, you know. Uh, but it's a yeah. We could talk about art all night, and we have. We yeah, we've been on this for like. 40 minutes. <laughs> All right. Art sucks. All right. Next. Uh, okay. So moving on to the, 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 our third segment for the, for the evening, uh, Corey is going to talk to us about seven wonders. So Corey, tell us about seven, what you, what you like about seven wonders. And then we'll uh, tell you how you're wrong. No, not really. Uh, tell us, tell us what you like about seven wonders and we'll, uh, we'll all talk about it. Oh, I didn't know we wanted me to, to go over something I knew about. I actually don't. I was just thinking about getting God. Seven Oh, Corey. Jeez. Uh, that was supposed to be the point. You're supposed to talk about something you know. We can talk about something else, but we can't because we already introduced Seven Wonders at the top of the episode. 
Yeah. Uh, Chris, you haven't just, explained anything. So, Chris, talk about Seven Wonders, and then we'll t- well, explain well, to Corey say, why it's been neat. I, I think Corey should just kind of tell us what he what. Yeah, tell what, us what you know about Seven Wonders. And we'll tell you why you're wrong. No, well, what just what <laughs> what brought you to want to talk about Seven Wonders? Uh, what brought me to it was that uh, I'm not sure how it came up, but I think I saw it. I think we saw it in a store, and I I'm always looking for games that I can introduce by my other group of friends who aren't hardcore gamers to get them to play if we have a night where we're not going out or something or we you know it's raining or we don't want to go to a movie or something so that's and i think you had mentioned that it might be a, a little a little milder game for people that aren't wanting to get into a hardcore game i think that was really the, the whole reason for it it is i mean the one thing i would say about seven wonders is so i i distinctly remember the year we were at in dallas at the board game geek convention and i think we'd all maybe heard of it but I, I didn't hear much about it, and the first thing I heard about it was, oh, hey, there's a there's a seven-player game that doesn't suck. And th- that was what brought, I think, pretty much all of us in that little group to it that week. Um, and I remember playing it and thinking, oh, this, yeah, this is nice for seven players. It's not a whole lot of interaction with those seven, but I'm enjoying myself, and we didn't have to split up into three different tables. Yeah, I, I remember thinking, uh, I didn't actually get to play it then. I, I, played, it, I played it the next year at Geekway. That the a lot of the commentary came out that it was a game that scaled from, I think as few as three up to seven, but that adding more players did not add any more game time because of the of the simultaneous drafting mechanism, which was was fairly interesting. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know, Seven Wonders is a simultaneous drafting game for three to seven players. Though it has a two player variant, I believe you're in control of various. Uh, civilizations, and you're mainly competing. Uh, you're competing with everyone at the table, but on the military front, you're competing with the players to the right and left of you. So you've got to kind of match military strengths with the people close to you. And then you're, you know, advancing technology, building monuments, uh, advancing, you know, your war machine, you know, that kind of thing, and trying to get the most points. Um, it works best, I think, as a three-player game because you're all interacting with one another. You know that. That military thing. If you're if you're killing someone in military and getting high points and they just don't care, um, you know, you can't do anything about it when it's the guy across the table. For example, you can try to counter draft, I guess, but you're just hurting yourself. You know, so it's got some downsides. I remember at the time thinking, "Hey, seven players simultaneous play plays about thirty minutes." You know, that kind of thing seems like a good deal, and I remember not particularly loving it. It was okay. I do own it because it does fill uh, that kind of easy it's easy to get into it's you know a low learning curve overall um and it does take seven players and it and it handles it fairly quickly too you know it like it does everything it says it's supposed to do i just don't know how much control i have when you're at that player count you know towards actually winning you know because the cards you pass you know you're gonna see one of them again or two i can't remember you know like you're not really going to see that hand that you passed around when you're playing with the max number of players. So that takes away from me, uh, you know, in terms of it's more of an activity for me. <laughs> I'll just, right. Yeah, I'll just I, no, it. It's an activity game, you know, and it's fine for BSing and kind of talking smack and that kind of thing. But I don't think it's um, that deep of a game. I actually like the duel, unlike Ryan does, because um, at least you've got some there's some timing going on in that game and you can, you know, counter draft against your opponent and kind of figure out what he's going for and, and mess with them. So I, I appreciate that part of it, but it basically is just seven wonders with two players. Uh, I mean, I like it well enough. Uh, I was just sitting here ruminating about it that I don't think I've, 
played Seven Wonders in a year or two. Uh, it's been it's one of, it's one of those items that's on my shelf, but it's never a a go grab it game. Mostly because I'm I'm usually never hitting seven, or if I'm hitting seven, uh, I'm grabbing something like uh, Ladies and Gentlemen or something like something like that that I I rarely get to play because it's a game that that requires seven players or more. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, I, I like the, uh, uh, I like the, the hand draft aspect of it. I, I find that, that seven wonders is a little more, maybe it's, it's not, it's not heavy by any means, but it's a little more than some players I've had over can take. So playing sushi go instead actually covers, cover, scratches the same itch without having to get into the complexities of like figuring out military victories and making certain you're not drafting that person, uh, all of the, the Masonic tiles or all the science tiles so that they can get their super mega awesome bonus. But no, I, I enjoy it. I think it's a, it, it's a good solid game. It, it's, it's good to see that it's, it, uh, cause I think it won, I think it won Kenner spiel the year that it came out, like whatever, whatever year that was, but it's good to see that it's that a game that has won Kenner spiel to CRS is available at places like, I, I know it's available on targets website. I'm not certain about Walmart's, but it's, uh, it's got a, a lot more broad availability in the marketplace. Yeah, and I think you really hit on the hit on the one thing for me is for what Seven Wonders becomes for any you know salty gamer in their collection, Sushi Roll does better, and it's more accessible to you know if I want to play that with my daughter, she can she can understand that puddings or points at the end of the game, nogiri and stuff like that is going to give you better points if you get the wasabi or whatever, and you know whereas for her, she, I mean she's eight, even for my you know twelve year old. He might kind of get the concept of I need to have better military, but you know the science stuff and the you know the monuments are all kind of lost on him. So I think I think Sushi Go is is the better buy for me. Yeah, I wish I wish it was a little more in between. Like I want something right in between those two, a little heavier than Sushi Go, but lighter than Seven Wonders for that kind of itch. You know, like Fairy Tale doesn't quite do it. I think Fairy Tale's a little convoluted with its scoring, you know, but yeah. Just add some military cards to Sushi Go. Just some sort of aggressive sushi mm-hmm. that uh, attacks your neighbors. Right. Chefs not, throwing uh, knives at each other. It's really still alive. <laughs> that or alternately throw in some um, some cards that combo up. So, uh, see, because that's the thing. In Sushi Go, you only draft the card. You don't have to build it, and that's where... That's a lot of where the magic in, in Seven Wonders comes, is that you not only need to draft the card out of the, the hand that you get, but you also need to have the resources able to build it, either by what you can pr- pr- you, what you can have happen in front of you or by buying from your neighbors. And the, But where Seven Wonders really hits it, though, is that if you build certain tracks, if the cards get passed to you, you can build up a track without having to spend anything more. So, like, one military building goes into the next military building in that track, into the next military building in that track, or one monument builds in the next monument and the next monument. So you can actually, as long as somebody is in front of you isn't spitefully drafting that out, if you pick the right track and the cards get past you, you can just pop up that track without actually having to have uh, a, a whole load of resources to build. Yeah, I mean, with all that said, Corey, the, there's a lot of people that love Seven Wonders, and I know a lot of groups that play the hell out of it. You know, And the same with like Dominion. Have you played Dominion? No, it's been on my list as well. But. Yeah, Dominion's one of those two that, you know, seems to be one of those get-together, screw-around, you can play it a bunch of different ways. And I think Dominion has a lot more variety than Seven Wonders does, and you'll get a lot more play out of it. Now, it can't play Seven, you know what I mean? 
God, you wouldn't want to play Dominion with seven, but I don't you know, need to play seven anyways. But <laughs> yeah, that's what we're we're looking for. I mean, the, my I'm usually playing with my family and their close friends, and that's a very short attention span. Low, they're looking for low mental exercise games. You know, they're not looking to go too deep. So those kind of games are, are what I was gravitating towards. And even like Sushi Go sounds like it'd probably be more more fun than some of these for that for that group. But yeah, I guess I'd have the- to try it. So. The game I mentioned earlier, Team Play, I think is a great family game. You know, it, you partner up, uh, very easy to understand rules. Uh, you're helping your partner with their goals and working with your own. And it's, you know, like a $15 card game or whatever. And plays four or six, like, easily. Excellent. Well, well uh, I think that's a good discussion on Seven Wonders. Uh, let's move on to our f- last segments of the of the evening. Let's do our quick hypothetical. So the hypothetical for this evening was, um, what semi-obscure movie property would you like to make a tie-in game for? Uh, we already talked about Sheriff of Nottingham, which 25 years later could, could tie back into Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, but outside of that brilliant pairing, what other game uh, or what other movie do you think could lend itself well to a, a tabletop uh, board game? Chris? Um, I would have to go with uh, Battle Royale, which is a Japanese movie based on a you know a book and a manga. Um, manga. It was um, it's about a bunch of school kids from the worst school. They in Japan they take one class of like eighth graders and make an example of them and make them all fight to the death on an island. And there's these sectors that you know slowly close down and blow up anybody that's in them, and it gets smaller and smaller until it gets down to the last people and then they're the heroes you know it's basically the hunger games before the hunger games existed the hunger games basically just ripped it off wholeheartedly basically so uh yeah i think there's a lot of stuff there because there's there's teams that form uh, you know in the book there's betrayal and backstabbing and then just all kind of like every kid gets handed a backpack that has a random weapon in it at the very beginning of the movie so you know, it's, uh, I think it would uh, be a lot of fun as a beer and pretzel kind of thing, you know, controlling multiple characters and just trying to survive to the end. Brian? Okay, so mine's not anywhere near as well thought out. Uh, so I basically just looked at my collection of, of uh, movies and thought, well, which one of these would be an interesting game? And I came away with, I, I mean, there's a simple fact that there are no really good bowling games. I mean, there's bowling dice, that's okay. But I need Kingpin, the board game. Bingo. You know, it's about a bowler who's lost his arm and has hijinks along the way to a national championship <laughs> against Bill Murray. I mean, what what else could a, a game want, right? I, I feel like that that with that uh to going going forward with that theme, uh, you're still not going to get a good bowling game. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, you're going to get a rolling move that uh you just uh it's it's got a rolling move that when you land on a square, it instructs you to go two spaces ahead. Right. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, but as long as it was themed properly, I'd, I'd go with it. True, true. Mm. Corey, what about you? Uh, mine's a little more obscure. I think uh, I think Brazil could make for a good uh, board game, kind of oh. like a weird, a weird theme and some strange daydream slash political mechanics. I don't know. You could you could go any any direction with it. I didn't know <laughs> we were supposed to be naming an AFI top one hundred movie. You know, Brazil, Metropolis. <laughs> I think Metropolis. Or duck soup would make an excellent movie. Game. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, Brazil would be weird. That would be kind of the problem is, is understanding, yeah, you know, like what's going on in Brazil. To yeah, that's funny because I was going to say I've, I haven't seen it enough times to actually know what what kind of game I would make because I don't understand half the movie. But 
Yeah, I thought it'd be fun. Uh, I think my choice for uh, for semi obscure movie, and I actually decided to go for obscure movie, and like some, uh, you know, yeah, Corey, uh, Corey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ask how many people have seen Brazil, and we'll see how obscure it is. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I I think my uh my choice for a semi obscure movie to be made my left board. foot. What my, my left, left foot? <laughs> Harold, Harold and Maude. Oh yeah, singing in the rain. No. Um, I think my choice for a, a semi-obscure movie to be made into a board game uh, would be uh, Better Off Dead, the board game. Uh, it would be a bunch of uh, small challenges, kind of like the uh, uh, what are that that Czech Games edition. It wasn't CG; it was the other the other Czech publisher. Um, their little burger uh, burger joint game, um, but in uh, in Better Off Dead, you've got a, you've got a skiing challenge, you've got a car race challenge. Um, maybe you blow up Ricky's mom. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I can see that card actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, not necessarily cards. I'm just saying, like you have, you compete in a number of mini games, like a like a little decathlon almost of uh, of elements of the film, uh, and then you know, uh, the uh, person who comes out on top is the is the big winner. You've got to uh, you've got to uh, flip burgers at the um, whatever the pork burger place was. So it's the, basically a retheme, a better retheme of Funfair. In a sense, yes, yes. Uh, although I don't know if there's if you can have a, a a giggling small German child in the Better Off Dead game, I guess you could you know just some kid running around saying I want my two dollars. You know it'd be fun actually think in that kind of same vein, also with a giggling German child mm-hmm. would be the Willy Wonka. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean there, there would obviously be player elimination there, but yeah, I mean, that could be that can actually be a pretty dark game. I see. I think. I think you don't necessarily. It's not a a player elimination game, uh, but everybody has a secret roll card that, uh, however far, either either you're you're doing like a win place and show on um on the characters to make it through, and or you've got sort of points riding on a certain character making it through the furthest, uh, so that nobody is actually controlling a particular character, but you do better because one character made it further for you. So nobody actually loses the game, but the characters from the from the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory fall off over time because they uh, they fail in their challenges. Yeah, I think we got to find the worst movie tie-in game. You know, like was there a Cocoon board game or a Driving Miss Daisy? There was a crawl oh, game. Man, what about Driving Miss Daisy? Was there a Driving? Uh, there Miss was Daisy? not a Driving Miss Daisy game. Uh, I was going to go with a My Dinner with Andre game, yeah. uh, where basically uh, you you as the player play <laughs> Wallace Shawn. Uh, and you just listen to Andre uh, prattle on for two solid hours before getting angry at him at the end of the film uh, or at the end of the game. But otherwise, yeah, you just sit there and do nothing. Whole what, about sh- what about Chocolat? I mean, that's prime. I never actually saw Chocolat. Oh, flowers Whoa. for Algernon. <laughs> you just get smarter and smarter and smarter, and then the dumber you get, you win. Uh. How about a, a game for 2001: A Space Odyssey? Uh, but just in the middle of the game, it's uh, 60 minutes of just silence. You just sit and look at the game board. That's it. First person to talk loses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I was looking through the list here. I had no idea, or I had blocked out of my mind that Gladiator won Best Picture. Oh yeah. 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 Gladiator. Gladiator. Gladiator won. Mm-hmm. Amidst a strong field, like <laughs> I mean, um, Gladiator won an Oscar. Yeah. Uh, the Deer Hunter, the board game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, the only 
the only exciting part is when you finally get to uh, the Russian roulette uh, in deep in the in the jungle. Um, but you still have to suffer through an hour of the wedding scene. Yeah, Amadeus, Oliver, the board game. Mm. Yeah, musicals. I do anything. <laughs> Man, there's a whole genre of musical board games that's you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. underexplored. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's only I can only think of that game with the piano. You know, where you play the song the, on the piano. Based on the game, based on the movie, the piano. Yeah, <laughs> with the right. naked Harvey Keitel. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. And. Was it Holly Hunter, I think it was? Yep. Yeah. This segment has gone off the rails, Scott. Yeah. Uh, by a lot, yeah. Okay, so for our next episode, we're going to be talking about Geekway to the West, some of the games we played, some of the experiences we had, uh, and some of the things that went along with that. For the ULP Podcast, I'm Scott Reed. I'm at Ludography Scott on Twitter. Ryan Johnson, I'm at Old River Studios. Chris Darden, at CB Darden on Twitter. And I'm Corey Evan-Wright, uh, at Beast of Lime on Twitter. Well, thank you so, so much for listening, everybody. Uh, the ULP podcast is a production of Ludography.net. Uh, Ludography.net to be acquired by Asthma Day in 2023. Thank you so much for listening. Games, games, games. Games, games. games. <laughs>